Hey, welcome to Scratching the Surface. I'm Jared Fuller, and this is my podcast about design criticism and practice. On this week's episode, I am talking to the designers, educators, editors, and publishers, Andrew Lister and Matthew Stewart. Andrew and Matthew are the editors, designers, and publishers of Bricks from the Kiln, which is this new journal, publication, magazine that centers in and around graphic design. If you're not familiar with the publication, dot, dot, dot is probably the closest comparison, and we we talk about that comparison in our uh, in our conversation, but even that doesn't really do it justice. It's this kind of new really interesting thing. I've read the first two issues and they're about ready to release the third issue and it's just a really, really great publication. I'm a, I'm a big fan. In this conversation, Matthew, Andrew, and I talk about their graphic design backgrounds and how they started Bricks from the Kiln. We talk about how publishing and editing has influenced how they think about their work, as well as their evolving definitions of graphic design and uh, quote-unquote design criticism. Remember, if you're a fan of the podcast and want to help support it, you can become a member for $5 a month or $50 a year to receive an exclusive monthly newsletter with additional content and episode previews. The first issue of that newsletter just went out last week, and memberships really help keep the podcast going, and I just really appreciate all of your support. And if you haven't yet, I also encourage you to check out Bricks from the Kiln and enjoy this conversation with its editors and designers, Andrew Lister and Matthew Stewart. Let's start, I usually, you know, it's always a a little bit of a uh, challenge talking to two people. So let's start with just, um, if each of you could just kind of introduce yourself for, for the listener so they know who's talking Who's talking when? Okay, uh, so the voice you're hearing now is uh, Matthew Stewart, um, and I'm a graphic designer yes. based in London. And I'm Andrew Lister, and uh, we work together, but I'm in Chicago at the moment. Great, perfect. Um, so let's just get kind of right into it. I, I really wanted to start um, talking a little bit about both of your backgrounds, because it sounds like both of you come from somewhat traditional graphic design backgrounds. Uh, So I'm kind of interested in where your interest in design came from and what that kind of early part of your your career was like. Um, I think that's kind of quite an interesting question and not one that I've actually sat down and given kind of much thought to, like how I've got from where I maybe began at, say, school to kind of now um, and where kind of my interest in design kind of started out. But I guess... I guess I'd have to say, when I was much younger, when I was around 15, I wanted to be um, an architect. Um, Not that I really knew what that involved. Um, um, I think I had some kind of uh, weird kind of ideas as to what kind of architecture might be, and it was probably some kind of romanticized idea. (laughs) Yeah. Um, And then when I was about 15, um, at my school, so pre-A-level, they encouraged you to take up a two-week work placement And I decided, or I think I was probably pushed by my parents uh, rather than um, being in any way kind of pragmatic um, to do a two-week work experience in an architect's office, which I found kind of the most boring and kind of frustrating experience. I kind of went in there expecting to build a building in two weeks and kind of kept on being like, okay, that's not going to happen. And so kind of entered into my A-levels, not really knowing what I wanted to do, but knew I wanted to be within the arts in some form or another. Um, and it wasn't until Art Foundation, which is 
where you kind of get a I guess a good education in a number of different disciplines. You get to try out anything within the arts, so whether that be textiles, um, architecture, 3D, fine arts. And graphic design was the one thing I kind of gravitated towards and kind of really enjoyed. Um, and then from there, and kind of building up a kind of small understanding of what graphic design was, um, I was encouraged to go to Newcastle, where, is, where me and Andy kind of met. Um, to study graphic design, a BA graphic design course. And it was probably quite a typical provincial British kind of BA graphic design. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I think probably the, the most uh, influential person that I kind of met there, was a, or we both met there, was a tutor called Chris Wakeling, who felt a bit kind of incongruous to the course. And he was like a hardcore photographer. And he used us to... Uh, people like Yosha Shuli, uh, Robin Kinross, um, and then through that kind of open doors to looking at kind of Krell Martins and then dot, dot, dot. Um, and I think that's when kind of my understanding of graphic design and the area of graphic design that I may be occupying now really came from. Okay. Uh, and I guess thinking back, I guess the kind of main interest in architecture that I had at an early age was maybe designers, a way of thinking or a methodology. Right. right. Nice. Andrew, what about you? It's a somewhat similar story. Obviously, we ended up at the same undergraduate course in the north of England, in Newcastle. Um, somewhat by accident. I don't know if it was a particularly good course, I would say. <laughs> but um, <laughs> there were good things. We had like a group of people who were quite dedicated to what they were doing and invested. Um, but it's, I don't know, in the UK at least, as a 16, 17-year-old, you choose your university and the course that you're studying without really having much of an understanding and at that age I don't know even now I would say it's hard to know like, like what is an appropriate design school to go to or an appropriate art school to go to it's kind yeah, of right. more by luck than judgment so we kind of both most ended up there before that I had um, started a course at Goldsmiths in London um, more on the back of it being having a reputation as an art school um, that was kind of more related to the YBA generation. Um, and I was kind of let down by that course specifically that I was on and wanted a bit more rigor in relation to typography and graphic design more specifically. So I ended up moving to the other end of the country, um, to okay. Newcastle too. But then I guess prior to that, as Matthew said, he was maybe interested in being an architect. My Before that, if I hadn't done graphic design at university, I... I would have done history or something mm. perhaps more writing or journalism related. So I guess that's in a way come full circle in a sense um, too. And I think maybe something we both share in common is that we both fell into or gravitated towards graphic design because it allows you to touch on or grab or kind of uh, mediate lots of other disciplines through right. the field. So you kind of right. um, act as a conduit or a a channel for lots of other material and content and it allows you to kind of jump around and research a lot of other fields while still being specialized in some way right. which so, i think we're still yeah yeah i mean and that i feel like actually a lot of both of your stories are very parallel to my own kind of mm -hmm. interest in design when i was in in high school around 14 or 15 i thought i wanted to be an architect also and very quickly uh shifted that to to graphic design and it was the same really the exact same kind of experience where it was this graphic design became this thing that I could actually explore all of these other things that I was interested in also. Mm -hmm. So when you, when you graduated, what, 
what did you do or what kind of work were you looking for? What, what did you think your career was going to look like? So as we were, the last kind of thing we worked on as we were graduating um, was this publication called Crimson Hexagon, which is the first thing that we worked on together. Um, and bits of it, I think I still like. Bits of it are pretty cringeworthy. I think some of the writing in it is pretty suspect. But um, that methodology or that way of working, um, that collaborative practice that Matthew and I established there has pretty much dictated all of the work that we've done together since. Mm. And Bricks in the Kiln very much follows that same trajectory. So that kind of laid or planted the seeds for a lot of the work that we did. So we kind of finished that as we were graduating. Um, oh, so you were the equivalent. Of you were actually working together, collaborating while you were still in school. You had already kind of started a, a working relationship. Yeah, it was our last, okay. essentially our kind of thesis project, or okay. they call it a final project on the course we were on. Um, and then that kind of span off. So as the the school year finished, we then went into, suddenly we were like doing a few book fairs and the book was in a few shows and we were distributing and selling and doing that kind of stuff. So we were kind of immediately straight off doing that. And then um, I think we both had bits and pieces of freelance work. Then we also both went straight into postgraduate courses, mm -hmm. which, um, you know, in hindsight, maybe isn't the best move. I, I would have allowed at least a year or something between yeah. the gap. So, yeah. So, so we there wasn't a lot of kind of um, out in the world work necessarily. There was like a gap while we were doing that stuff, and then suddenly we were straight back into academia and kind of also questioning and thinking about where we might be as designers. Mm -hmm. And during that period, we continued to kind of work together. Uh, so whilst working separately on those kind of two MAs that kind of were running in parallel to one another, we still had kind of various projects that we would be kind of collaborating or sharing on. Um, they were all kind of, I think, building upon what we'd started with Crimson Hexagon and have certainly kind of led into Bricks from the Kiln. I think having kind of autonomy over kind of content and graphic design, right. like Andrew said, being either a conduit or maybe a kind of vessel for other kind of... Um, and that's, I think, one of the reasons why graphic design as a subject is so interesting because you can pull on all these other things. Um, and that's right. something I think both were exploring during our kind of two-year kind of MAs. And I think we had kind of very different experiences um, of institutional and also kind of uh, educational kind of uh, frameworks and models. Um, some good, some bad. Um, um, but then after that, we, uh, Andrew kind of came back to kind of London. We kind of started working together on kind of more traditional kind of freelance graphic okay. design while also kind of teaching at the same time. And teaching since the MA has kind of offered, I guess, some kind of stability and also kind of an outlet for some of the things we're beginning to think about. So we've all always kind of touched in on kind of academia, whether being in it or kind of right. teaching in. Right. Uh, you, you mentioned Bricks from the Kiln, which is obviously a big part of what I want to want to talk to you guys about. But I do have one other quick question just about your background. Um, I'm curious. Uh, I didn't realize that you had been collaborating since, you know, since you were in school. I'm curious kind of what... Uh, I don't know the best way to ask this question, but like, you know, what were what were the similarities or what were the kind of approaches to design that that drew you together that were able to kind of foster this this collaboration? When we were, were um, undergrads, I would say 
we were looking or we were reading a lot of the same stuff. Okay. And I think that's probably the, yeah. was the, um, the kicker of like, oh, we should work together on something because whatever projects we were working on, we were like, oh, have you read this piece? And inevitably we'd be like, yes, I just read that recently. Right. And yeah. we had this, still have this odd knack of um, following similar threads. So you, we would like end up from one thing five steps later to another thing and then that being like a very similar trajectory. And so there's that. And obviously we had obviously been friends the whole time we were on that course. Um, but then there's a difference when you start to work, whether it feels productive. There's plenty of people that you can be really good friends with, have similar tastes with, but can't, can't collaborate with. And I think right. that first project that we worked on together, um, you know, usually if you're working individually, you have this kind of inner monologue where you're, thinking of stuff, questioning it, and that can kind of play out a bit longer. I felt like, well, for me at least, that first time that we worked together, it kind of um, narrowed that time period down really, really quickly. Mm -hmm. It was like, is it this, is it that? No, it's this, bang. And the, the thought process from conception to realization became so much quicker. And I think, um, yeah, and having like very, very similar tastes meant that you know, actually sitting down at a computer and designing together often doesn't become too strenuous of an activity. And uh, we're able to like bounce things off quite quickly and shut things down and talk ourselves in and out of things together as a group. So, um, yeah, and I think it's difficult to find collaborators that um, are that kind of uh, generous with one another or like have that much trust in one another. And um, which is why I think we came back to working together continuously because you know we've worked with other people and actually being like okay well actually this is probably luckily we stumbled across like a really productive collaboration so we should not like stop doing that right yeah, yeah yeah this was never kind of we never sat down and thought about this and consciously <laughs> right today we're going to work together and do this we kind of i think more than anything kind of fell into it and that, like andrew was saying through sharing readings and having shared interests in a subject matter or subject matters um, it just kind of made sense. Um, and I think for the final project, uh, the Crimson Hetzman that Andrew was talking about, we'd um, discussed kind of separately about doing a publication of some sort. So oh, okay. we would graphic designer, editor and publisher. And it was like, oh, why don't we just do it together? Right. Um, and that um, experience was really fruitful. So it was like, OK, why don't we kind of continue this? Um, but also not kind of put pressure on ourselves for it to be anything kind of more than it might be. And it's kind of gross and there, I guess. I mean, that's, that actually really sets up nicely bricks from the kiln, I think, because I'm, I was curious where, like, wh what are the origins of that? How did that publication come about? I'd say the most of the discussion or work towards that in the first, because we kind of talked about it maybe for a, a year or so before we actually really did anything with it was probably just on long bus rides in London. It'd be like on the top deck of a bus for an hour, just talking about it. And so, and we had lots of people we knew who were writing things that were kind of floating around in the ether that didn't necessarily have an outlet or, um, you know, had these longer term research projects that were bubbling along for years and years and years, but they were like looking for an excuse to write these things. And I think, I think even when we sat down and said, like, okay, if we did this publication today, what were the pieces that we could put in it without <clears throat> much of a stretch? And it was already, like, three-quarters of the issue was probably already there. In yeah. sense. So we were, like, 
scanning the terrain or like talking about what might go into this kind of thing for a while before it actually we called we kind of like sat down and actually did it so um again it felt like um a kind of slow burn or kind of natural process that led into this as well yeah and then also i think it's important to say um from a kind of practical standpoint it turned out at the same time they were able to get some funding through the institution that andrew was working at time uh winchester school of art which allowed us to then start this thing up um it gave us money for the production of the first issue and without that um mm. then who knows um and i think it just became we became kind of opportune like that money became available it's like we've been talking about this thing and yeah like, okay great now let's just do it um and kind of forced us into actually kind of putting our kind of miles if you like where <laughs> right I guess we should, I feel like we should probably uh, describe it a little bit or talk about what it is for, for people who are not familiar with what you're doing. And I think you would do a much better job talking about what Bricks from the Kiln is. So how do you describe it? Or when you're talking about it to people, what's kind of the, the that kind of top level uh, pitch? Uh, that's a really good question. I think we're still kind of feeling our way <laughs> okay. with that. Okay. A very succinct um, kind of definition or one-liner that sums it up. I guess uh, the one thing we kind of begin to kind of talk about is maybe that it's, uh, it's, a, it's a, a journal, um, which seems like a, a good enough term for it. It's not a magazine or it's not maybe a kind of publication or a book, oh. uh, but it kind of straddles these kind of two lines where it contains um, short form writing, um, but not kind of journalistic writing. It's kind of a little bit longer form. Um, and I guess the content is kind of critical writing on and around graphic design. Um, and that's not necessarily to say the articles in there are about graphic design, right. some of them are, um, but that seems like the kind of most exact definition that we can kind of come on that in, on the one hand, quite specific and on the other hand, quite vague and kind of, uh, touches on terms such as kind of visual communication or maybe even design criticism or, um, no cultural theory, mm-hmm. uh, but none of those feel like as a single term, they're in the right kind of ballpark. Um, although they kind of touch on some of the things that are kind of in the journal itself. Um, so yeah, maybe uh, writing a collection of writing on and around graphic design. Yeah, that's what struck me about it is that it, it felt very much, I mean, both of you are graphic designers. It, it's a very uh, intentionally designed artifact. Um, and it very clearly has the point of view of a graphic designer. But I'm, I'm specifically thinking about Mark Owen's piece on, um, on uh, Vaporwave, I think, you know, kind of pushes those boundaries a little bit. And so I'm, I guess the question that I'm, I'm struggling to articulate is how, you know, do you have an editorial framework? Or like, how do you know what a Bricks from the Kiln piece is and what isn't the the like the real barometer is like we're making stuff that we would want to read essentially like (laughs) right right. somewhat selfishly making a publication that like oh everything in there i would want to read Mm -hmm. um and that usually means that they perhaps start from a point of graphic design but usually don't end up there or um because if i'm honest i'm not that interested in reading just about graphic design. Maybe yeah. it comes back to the thing we talked about at the start, that like graphic design is actually something that is like allows you to channel other material. Um, so it's, I wouldn't say it's at all really about design criticism. I don't think we've had a single piece that really um, 
yeah. um, offers kind of critique or forward or like definition of the future of graphic design in any way. And that's perhaps because we're not overly interested in that. Uh, they much more come from a literary world or an art world. I think a lot of the stuff is more concerned with kind of art or design history. Mm-hmm. Um, like a lot of our work is either forward looking from a back from a historical point of view or digging back into archival material and reconsidering that. So I think there's definitely that common thread within it. Um, but also we deliberately were like, never, we haven't set themes or right. editorial topics for instance, because um, we're not really commissioning writing. It more, it comes out the other way. It's more like we're talking to people who are working on these longer term projects and it's finding a way to tie these things together. Oh, okay. I think that, uh, that kind of through line or connecting thread is like super connected to what that publication we first worked on, Crimson Hexagon, where we were writing it as we were designing it. So like each article would lead on to the next. And I think we want that through line across the issue and across from issue to issue as well. You know, and I think of like the best examples of things like that are, are one book that we always talk about is Richard Hamilton's Collected Words. Oh yeah. And um, which is obviously a collect a book of collected writings, but the way in which it's just strung there is this like singular narrative that leaves in and out of his practice. It's super interesting, even down to the the typographic detailing of that book that the original texts are in Roman and then his new editions are written in italics that like link one chapter to the next. They have these very small kind of unassuming titles that group things, but really it's just like one long essay, but it's taken from all of his written output from all these different places. And you know, the typeface changes slightly. He describes it as like the, um, the oddities of typesetting that relate back to the publication or non-publication of these texts. And I think that kind of model is something we're super, super interested in. But I think quite a lot of the writings that are featured here um, are by people where, um, who use writing as part of their practice. So they're not writing about practice or writing about graphic design or their graphic designer or graphic designer, but they're using writing as a kind of vehicle uh, to kind of explore modes within their practice. So although it's not kind of about graphic design, I guess by virtue of the fact that we're kind of practicing graphic designers, it has some kind of uh, foot in graphic design. Um, And it it kind of might be looking at kind of approaches or ways of thinking um, kind of more than anything. I think that's really interesting because it's something I, I, I'm fascinated that you that you use the phrase in and around graphic design, because that's also the phrase that I've found is actually most helpful in talking about this podcast, because at its core, it is very much about graphic design and it is very much about design criticism. But the more that I've talked to people and the wider, uh, wider pool of people that I pull from, uh, that I talk to who are more and more outside of kind of traditional graphic design practices, I'm realizing that my own definitions of graphic design are starting to fall apart a little bit and are expanding and changing. And I'm, I'm curious if that's, that resonates with you at all, or, or if that's kind of your experience and that, that even this term graphic design, you know, saying, saying that something is in and around graphic design, um, is helpful, but also in a, in a lot of ways for me, it's also not helpful because I don't actually know what that means, even though I say it all the time. I think that's what we're going to draw into. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Non-specificity. Yeah. 
Um, it tries to be specific, but falls apart in its lack of specificity, which is totally what graphic design, like it sounds like a really defined discipline, but it's not. And it's like figuring itself out and it doesn't really know what it is. And it means a lot of different things to different people. Yeah. Um, so maybe I think, I wonder if more it's on and around typography. I feel like the focus is more typography <clears throat> than graphic design for us. And I, I think like, um, I don't get overly hung up on how you describe your work, but obviously there's debates about that. And some people describe themselves as typographers rather right. than graphic designers. And I think that's appropriate to what we do, mainly because a lot of the work we deal with is typeface, but also in terms of like thinking about being tied into language or content or thinking about the translation of material into written form. And I think a lot of the work, especially in this new issue we're working on, deals with language and typography specifically. Mm -hmm. And Again, it's maybe not helpful, but this new issue that we're working on at the moment is simultaneously the most specifically and least specifically tied to typography <laughs> design simultaneously. Like, there are pieces that are very much concerned with typography, but then they fall away and like actually are concerned with completely different things. Mm. Or there are pieces that are actually about language and punctuation, but then end up at a point that's like totally about type design. So. Um, Mm -hmm. Yeah, maybe on around typography. Again, not, not specific, but perhaps slightly more specific, yeah. I think as well, one thing we're very conscious on, which you touched on there, Jarrett, uh, that these kind of definitions are constantly expanding and evolving, and the understanding of a subject is doing the same thing at the same time. Like, it's never, ever fixed. It's always kind of growing and moving as kind of technologies and kind of our understanding of a subject evolves. And when setting up kind of bricks from the kiln, that's something we were very kind of conscious of not wanting to completely ground it and say, right, it's about this and only this, because we knew that over time, things are going to evolve, change. Our interests are going to evolve and change. And we wanted Bricks in the Kiln to kind of be able to kind of house those mutations and let it kind of more. Yeah, yeah, I, I love that. I mean, because that's, because you said something else that I wanted to, to ask you about, because you specifically said that you don't, you, you see it as critical writing, but you're not sure it would be called design criticism. Um, and that's a, another kind of question that I wrestle with all the time with this podcast, with my own writing, with my own work, because I start, I feel like I started this podcast because I felt like there wasn't enough design criticism or that the type of or what I considered design criticism wasn't interesting to me. And I always get really self-conscious talking about this because I feel like I, I bring this up in every every episode. But that so much of design writing is just critique of the new logo redesign or, you know, a pile on on Twitter when there's some big rebrand or something. And I think we're probably all in agreement that that's just not interesting to, to us. Um, For sure. And what I've started to, to come to realize with the more people I talk to is that design, that's not the only type of design criticism um, and that it can take all of these other forms. And so I, I guess kind of my, so when you talk about a piece that starts with typography and then goes to something else, my, my inclination is to say that that still could be a type of design criticism maybe. And so I guess, so, so I kind of have two questions about that. One is, how, when when you say that you're not sure it's explicitly design criticism, what does that mean, or or how how do you see design criticism? Um, 
But then the second part of the question is, do you see what you're doing as having some sort of place within this, this larger design discourse, if it's maybe not specifically criticism? One thing we're very conscious of is not wanting to kind of pigeonhole yeah. what we're doing. Yeah. As soon as you call it design criticism, it comes with a whole load of baggage and assumptions. Right. Um, and I think that's something we're very, very conscious of. And the kind of writing that is described as design criticism, I don't feel like what is in the journal is that, although it could be, that, you know. Right. Um, um, and the, the second part of the question was, do we think it could be design criticism? Yeah, or does it have, or where, you know, if it's not, could it be design criticism? Or if it's not, what, does it have a place in kind of the design discourse at large? Yeah, so I think that the place, the place where it sits is particularly productive for us, right? It's not design journalism, right? Like it's not right. talking about um, current debates within the field. Um, or critiquing specific pieces of design work that um, exist, or even necessarily offering um, histories or profiles of graphic designers, although there have been a couple of pieces that have done that. Um, it's the, the fact that it operates in this space that is between a magazine and between an academic journal. Mm -hmm. And I think it, what it offers, or at least I'd like it to offer, is a space for those writers to figure out what they're up to in their own practice. And they might be designers, they might be from different fields. In fact, like a lot of our writers are designers, but that have kind of interdisciplinary practices. Right. Um, and that means that we're asking for a level of rigor in the writing, but, or we say writing or research or projects, whatever it is, um, but that there's some flexibility or leeway in how it's written. We're not asking for project abstracts. We don't right. formalize right. the way footnotes are formatted and follow specific linguistic styles. So that actually gives a freedom for the writing to be, um, in a way, kind of a part of the practice or a part of the project. Like the way it's written is as important about as what's being said. Mm -hmm. So we're not like trying to flatten things into that, but we're equally not trying to um, um, take away away the academic rigor or like the level of research because i think that's something super important in every piece that we've had in the issues so far so um and that's where i see a potential problem in a lot of what poses as design journalism at the moment is it's kind of just like regurgitating work from one website to another right using uh, prefabricated releases and just reformatting them somewhat um, and then the, the, the debate component is usually like well, this person's copied this other person's work, or this right. is a ripoff of that, which is not really an interesting discussion to be having. Um, yeah, that's where I think um, yes, I think there's value. That that's a really valuable space in an area of design criticism, um, in terms of like having that outlet. Like I think of there's a piece coming up in the new issue by a writer called Brian Quinn, who um, comes from an illustration or design background, but was on a program called um, Critical Writing, an MA Critical Writing program at the Royal College of Art. Oh, yeah. Quite a few people have written for us from that program, which I think is a really, really interesting course. Um, everyone who I've seen come out of that has been doing very interesting work. And that that's the piece where it's, uh, it's about typography, but it's written from a much more linguistic or literary point of view. Mm -hmm. um, and the references are not, really from the world of graphic design but it loops back 
in on itself and becomes about graphic design. But then the way in which it's written, the way in which it's formatted, the way in which it uses punctuation, and even the way in which it'll be laid out in the issue are like all tied up and bound in together as that piece. So mm-hmm. that's where I think this element on Chris is more like when these things come together and the design of those pieces and how they're written rather than a piece of writing that's necessarily about design which yeah. does that make sense yeah mm. so i think barossus is kind of extending beyond uh, maybe like a, a formal dogma or right um, it's like all kind of vague kind of surface level uh, kind of design journalism but it's uh, yeah about rigor in writing um and also that writing maybe kind of leads away from graphic design but it has some kind of I don't know, rigor to it and maybe it's drawn through kind of uh, and kind of historical connections to language yeah. and typography. Uh, but they're, I think, quite loose. And again, I think this always comes back to kind of our interests in uh, design being kind of a vessel or a conduit right. for other things. Yeah. You can explore what graphic design is about by looking at these areas and pull it back into design if you want yeah, I mean, that's that's exactly what I was going to say, actually, when I was thinking about your answer. And I, I love that you said kind of going beyond this this kind of surface level, which is so much of what design writing is. And I mean, that's where the name of this podcast came from, was was trying to kind of get beyond that, that surface a little bit and kind of reinvestigate what design could be. I'm reminded of, um, it, it, it reminds me of something that... Uh, Stuart Bailey and David Reinfurt said and talking about dot 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 which is kind of the closest thing I can think of to what you're doing it's not it's not that similar but it's somehow the closest comparison I can make but they said something when they were questioning whether a story should go in the magazine whether it should go in dot 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 and and kind of were asking themselves is this something that would be in a graphic design magazine and then they were like well if we put it in there then then yeah yeah, then that can be, and then that's what a design magazine can be, and it, it feels very similar to the way you kind of think about that also. Yeah, sure, I think there is a certain depth to kind of dot, 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 and watch Drew Bailey and David Ryan for, and kind of Peter Billack, if you like, uh, kind yeah. of set up what we're doing. We're definitely kind of coming off the back of that lineage. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think one thing that we're very kind of conscious of when we're kind of putting out the journal is that we want to make it interesting for us, right. you know, as, like, whether that's kind of graphic design practitioners or whether that's kind of uh, educators or uh, just people who are kind of interested in the world, if you like. Um, And so we're not thinking about kind of market forces or um, kind of trying to target some kind of very specific group. Um, We're kind of putting it out there in the hope that it will find kind of a network of like-minded people who also want to read it. Right. So, yeah, so David and Stuart talk about pieces being, does it feel dot 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 esque yeah. right like rather than does it feel like it should be in a graphic design magazine and it's the same like we're like oh does this feel like a bricks from the kiln kind of piece right but and i think you're right dot 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 is for sure like treads a, a similar territory and i think something we're always aware of is not finding ways to pull away from that i mean even in the format we're kind of in a similar kind of yeah. uh even just dimension publication which is more to do with the economy of production than anything right. um, the size that is the most economic off a press sheet printing in Europe. Um, so 
we're getting the most out of our budget as we can possibly, right. which, is, uh, which puts it in a certain, there's an ethos that is tied to that, which is probably quite dot, dot, dot-esque as well. Yeah. Um, so we're trying to think of ways that we don't want to tread too close to that. Um, we don't want to retread that path. And it's something we're like wrestling with a little bit. Even the fact that people like Mark Owens or, or James Langdon yeah. have written for dot, dot, dot and write for us as well. Um, or that they're simultaneously publishing in the serving library and writing a piece for us. Um, right. But I don't, but I mean, that association is not a bad one. It's, it's something that we read a lot when we were, especially when we were undergrad students. Like it's obviously informed a lot of what we do. I have a great, like, great deal of respect for that publication and everything that David and Stuart and that whole kind of like coterie of writers and designers have been producing. So um, it's not a bad thing, but it's definitely something to be cognizant of as we're going. How are you, how are you thinking about, you know, what are the ways that you want to pull away or how are you thinking about making bricks from the kiln, you know, remaining in that lineage, but also forming something new? Because I feel like starting a new publication in 2017 or, or 16, whenever, whenever the first one was, um, a printed publication is already a kind of a very bold statement. Um, so like what makes a publication in 2018 different than, I just asked you like four different questions there, but you know, what are the ways that kind of culture today are just mm -hmm. naturally making these things different? Yeah. So I think, um, I'm not sure which question to, uh, begin yeah, with, but I'm sorry about that. Um, but in terms of how we're pushing away from that format, I think the first issue we saw as a, a way of just like, okay, well, it's a testing ground. Let's put it out and actually see if anyone wants to buy it, wants to read it. Yeah. Uh, is there a readership for this kind of thing? Is there some kind of longevity for it? And like the response was pretty pretty good in that way. So we were like, okay, that so maybe we can push away and be. Uh, I don't. I don't it's given us a license to be like, oh, we can push things a little bit more. Like, and I think, yeah, it's right. The, we don't really use, we have a website that really is just used as a point of sale for the population at the moment. Yeah. But it also has just become a good repository to put um, extra links. Or like, so there's an audio piece in the second issue right. that accompanies um, James Bully's essay on uh, Daphne Oram and Jeffrey Jones. Um, and that, that's something that came out quite late out of his piece. He was writing, so he is kind of, doing research on Daphne Oram's archive and he'd written this really nice essay for us that kind of spans out of his PhD research. And he was like, something he suggested quite late in the process was, oh, I think maybe I want to have this audio soundscape from the archival recordings that I'm dealing with alongside it. And um, a page on the website has MP3s, although a side story is that we actually have to, um, the, the new Daphne Oram Trust uh, don't want it to be quite as available as that online. So we're having to deal with like ways to make it <laughs> yeah. inaccessible. Um, but, but that um, that way of thinking or, or thinking of like a, a multimedia way of working with the publication. And I think there's some, some awkwardness between this like back and forth between having to go to a website to mm -hmm. listen to the sound. Mm -hmm. um, but it's still probably less awkward than like sticking a CD in the back of the issue. Um, right. That, for example, is has become a really, really important thing. And this next issue, every piece in the issue, it's kind of the closest thing that we've had to a um, kind of an editorial framework for an issue is every piece happens to have an audio component accompanying it. Oh, so, wow. Um, 
So that will mean that um, this next issue is almost somewhere between like a, a piece of text and sound publishing. And I think that is um, something we're really interested in and ways in which that'll work, particularly how that will work in terms of a launch or some kind of exhibition to accompany the issue as well. So, um, I mean, that's one example where we're trying to push yeah. the format away from that or trying to think about um, flipping it. Like if we think in the first couple of issues, most of the pieces are um, come from existing material that either was performed or written or is an offshoot of an existing right. body of work or lecture, say, for example. And this one is like a step in the direction of like flipping that around and saying like, actually, what if it is just the piece or it's something to be performed or it's a script for an audio piece to be read or something. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. And it's also, and the other thing to throw in that maybe somewhat complicates things a little bit as well is that we're also, um, we have these projects that we um, are thinking about that necessarily, that don't necessarily fit into an issue of Bricks in the Kiln. So what we are talking about a lot at the moment is expanding it to be a journal, but also a publishing platform for larger projects. Oh, interesting. Need more. So um, the first of those will be a, um, a book of collected writings and also the collected art objects of an um, a art critic, writer, librarian, someone who describes himself as a lapsed anarchist called Ron Hunt, who we interviewed in the first issue. And oh, I've yeah. maintained this kind of close back and forth relationship with him. And he has just given us everything he's ever written. And that. Oh, wow. Not, not well He's like outside of the art historical canon. He's obviously not a graphic designer. So that's going to be a book that I think will sit under the, the title of Bricks from the Kiln, but will be a standalone publication in its own right. Um, so I think we're really interested in actually exploding out. So that actually will kind of feel like an issue of Bricks from the Kiln, but rather than having a variety of different yeah. writers, it will all be from one writer. That's great. I love that idea, actually. That's 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 really smart. We've kind of talked around this a lot throughout this whole conversation, but do you think being a graphic designer or coming from a graphic design background influences how you think about editing or, or that, that that brings something different to the role of editor? Yeah, I think massively. I mean, neither of us are trained as editors yeah. or uh, aim off a kind of a literary course we're kind of graphic designers through and through um, and I think many of the things we discussed particularly um, in the second issue or we made kind of more overt in the second issue um, was about uh, how that kind of editorial stamp kind of plays out throughout uh, whether that's kind of very overt or kind of in kind of the small kind of minutiae some of the things we kind of discuss a lot is um, things having kind of an inner logic and I think um, that comes down to kind of our kind of and as editors. Uh, a few of the pieces that we've um, published and are actually going to publish have been by uh, authors who's, um, for whom English is their second language. Oh, um, so write with this kind of very interesting style, which is on the one hand kind of, kind of could almost be described as like a kind of pigeon English, terms of phrase that haven't quite been translated properly, but still make sense. Mm. And so the, the discussions that kind of exist amongst ourselves is whether you kind of leave, leave that very interesting kind of tone of voice of the writer in there, um, if it still makes sense, or do you kind of have to make it 
someone who uh, speaks and has grown up in a kind of English-speaking household, if you like. Um, and then also with kind of small details such as kind of footnotes and how you style and set those footnotes. Right. I think one of the kind of biggest editorial kind of uh, roles is in kind of placement of texts, um, where they sit in the issue and yeah. the issue, um, how it flows and the pace of it going from one article to the next. And I think that's a very graphic design thing to think of, yeah. thinking of the flow. Um, and the pace of something going from something maybe that's short to long to short to long and feeling like it has a rhythm um, right. to it. Um, and I think that's one way as editors we begin to kind of approach uh, piecing these things together. Um, some of them are to kind of do with subject matter and kind of what's being discussed and how that might change if you place it next to something else. Sure, but and there's also this idea of sensitivity to the specific needs of each piece as well. So obviously we have... Mm -hmm. We have like a little document that we refer to that's more to do with like the grammatical conventional house styles that maybe we follow for the issue. But we're breaking those a lot in service of like what each specific piece needs, whether it's right. like, does this need footnotes or does it feel overly academic if you start to put all these references in it? Or should it have more of a poetic kind of tone? Or um, mm -hmm. what should, should these footnotes sit or image references or whatever sit actually on the page with the thing they're showing or do they come later? And like thinking about the like the rhythm or the turn of a page and actually when this like paratextual information is revealed or added in. So something in this new issue we talked a lot about is like having this central body text area, but having these side and bottom margins that allow these um, right. extra bits of information to come in and out of the piece. And like sometimes it's like, no, actually this needs to come at the end because it disrupts the flow of it. Or, you, you know, we're editing a long text by David Benoit that um, and the editing of that is like totally thinking about how it's formatted and how it reads at the same time right. and I think if the were divided, if it was like there was just an editor and just a designer we'd end up with a very different kind of piece but I think we know that we can say okay well we need that to sit alongside or in relation to this so we can pull that out as kind of a quasi footnote or extended image caption but it's still going to feel connected to this rather than just being mm -hmm. like here's all my chicago manual style references stick them all the end in some extended yeah I think, yeah, with the, the formatting, that's where the role of us as typographers, graphic designers, and editors really kind of play its hand. Yeah. In way. And I think that's the, uh, that's the kind of realm that we're interested in exploring and exploiting. Yeah, I love that. Um, I, I, this is a two-part question. Um, do, do you still... I'm going to ask you both of them. I'm going to ask both questions at the same time. Do you still do other like like where does bricks from the kiln fit into your larger practice are you still doing client work commissions things like that and then if you are um how has publishing bricks from the kiln has that had any effect on how you think about those other projects or has you know things you've been thinking about or working through in the journal come back in client work or something like that yeah we we absolutely are even though we're in different continents okay we're still working together on a lot of um freelance kind of projects it's mainly print-based publications okay. flyers whatever that the usual kind of um printed matter of graphic design and um yeah we're working sometimes it's working with people who then fold back in and then end up being in the issue so there's that kind of content oh, feedback yeah. uh, um 
but also I think about, so we, we recently designed this book um, for publishers in London called Test Center, who we worked with quite a lot. Um, and it's a, a collected edition um, of this book called The Magic Door, a book series called The Magic Door by Chris Torrance, who is a, a poet who lives in rural Wales. Um, and it's a series that's been written over a long period of time, and it pulls those books together. Some of them are very rare and hard to find. And it's, everything is retypeset, so it's somewhere between a facsimile and a, mm. a new edition in its own right. But I remember the talking about that design process, and we had certain ideas for it and things that we would put to them that ne didn't necessarily end up happening in the final publication, but we were like, oh, maybe that's a move that we do in Bricks from the Kiln or something. So oh, it's like, it's, all, it's always bubbling away um, underneath these other projects. Um, and inevitably kind of design strategies or pieces of content or kind of discussions that we're having in those projects just fold themselves back into Bricks from the Kiln. So it's like the one constant, it's like, it's always there. Right. We're also doing these kind of other projects and both teaching as well, so yeah. Yeah, I think that's an important thing to say. We are both teaching as well. Um, so we kind of have these kind of three lives, if you like. One's kind of freelance or as a graphic designer, the others as kind of an educator, and then the third being yeah. this kind of looser practice. Um, and I think education is kind of an interesting realm to kind of explore some of the kind of ideas or things that you're thinking about that won't necessarily be accepted in certain areas of uh, mm -hmm. commercial yeah. Yeah, I mean that's kind of that's kind of exactly why I, why I was asking because I I again I'm in kind of a similar similar kind of framework where I have a, a freelance practice I do this podcast and kind of the writing criticism stuff and then teach and I'm always interested in talking to other people who have that and how those influence each other or fit together you know are they three separate practices or do they kind of become kind of one big thing and it's just kind of you know moving between them all. I like to think of them as one big thing. I think beginning to try to separate them in a very distinct way, um, I think would possibly kind of drive you insane. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and it's allowing kind of one to feed into the other and then having this kind of back and forth uh, between the kind of the three or the two or whatever it kind of might be. Um, and I, th I think that that's where the productive kind of ground lies between those kind of areas. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think in a lot of... I'm using some of the text or PDFs of articles from Bricks in the Kiln as readings for my students mm. or things that, that I mm -hmm. use as kind of past resources to prompt discussions about things. So like there's a, a piece in the second issue that's um, a conversation between Celine Condoleri and um, James Langdon. Yeah. And I've given that text maybe two or three times and, um, and you, you know it inside out, you know the ways that you can approach it. So it becomes really productive as a point of discussion because you can also talk about like how it's formatted or, right. you know, the other day I gave a student of mine a draft of a piece Matthew's written for the third issue, which is an interview with, uh, um, Naya Yiakamaki, who's a curator at the White Chapel in oh, London. Yeah. And this is an interview all about the act of, uh, the interview itself. Um, and the idea of transcription and of how a conversation is framed, um, I mean, it's super relevant to thinking about our podcast. Yeah. It's relevant to thinking yeah. about the, the designer and editor as well. Um, and I gave that to one of my students the other day when they were talking about interviewing someone just to be like, well, okay, let's step back and actually think about the conceptions for um, 
like how do you frame this interview? Where does it happen? How is it transcribed? How is it yeah. subsequently documented? Is it in public? Is it in private? Is it reformatted afterwards? And I think, so in that sense, like the concerns, the interests from the issue, like are always coming back. I mean, it's natural that they would because it's the things that you're thinking about. They're always going to kind of percolate into the, the teaching or the other work that you're doing. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I think as well, using them as physical material and like touch on that as readings, they offer kind of a point of discussion, particularly we're both teaching graphic design students, right? Um, so you're able to talk about the formatting, you're able to talk mm -hmm. about the kind of typography, the use of a kind of grid text area, um, all these elements. And then through that, you can discuss the content in the article, which is the kind of juicy bit, the one thing that you kind of want to be talking right. about. It allows a graphic design student a way in. And then also how those kind of formal considerations have kind of bear through and what we've had to bear in mind in order to get it to the point at which they're seeing it. Yeah. I'm, I'm curious what you think. We, we started talking about um, kind of design criticism and, and some of our problems or, or frustrations with that. What, what would you like to see in the design discourse or what is missing from design criticism today that either you would like to read more of or that you'd like to publish or topics or subjects that you think are not being covered and should be? I don't really, um, I'm not the kind of person, I, I don't know, not to speak for Matthew, but I don't know if he is either that um, wants to make proclamations for an entire discipline, yeah, especially yeah. because when we're like, uh, we think of about ourselves as kind of like in, but not of the discipline itself as well. Um, right. You know, I'm, I always feel conflicted about the fact that maybe both of us are teaching, like that we're maybe um, cons like adding this further line of like precarious um, work because we, like we teach because essentially um, we have a precarious kind of uh, economic situation because of the kind of work we do. So like, is it hypocritical to be teaching that same kind of practice anyway? So right. that, that's an aside. Right, but, um, right. But I think it's, but I don't like to speak for an entire discipline, but there are obviously things that are missing within the field for sure. Um, it's a very Western Eurocentric discipline. Mm -hmm. That's yeah. a problem, of course. There are the same, same old people that are regurgitated, inevitably old white male people mm -hmm. who are mm -hmm. referred to as the godfather, like the heroes of graphic design, which is a problem. Of course, that's something that needs remedying. Mm -hmm. Like, um, there's a whole um, kind of world of people that are, I think could be really, really interesting to look at that just haven't been written about or haven't been discussed or just like not talked about within the framework of um, traditional graphic design courses, at least that I'm aware of in the UK and the yeah. US. Yeah, um, I agree. And, and this sense of like colonizing the field, um, which, I mean, again, somewhat hypocritical from me, Matthew, being like, White right male yeah, no. from Europe. Like, I, I get it. I, you, I've been there. I think it's a, so sure. I think that's absolutely something that yeah. that needs um, looking at. Sure, and I think from a educational perspective, I would like there to be more ability for kind of for writing to feed back into um, design graphic design courses. I feel like it's so, mm -hmm. if you're talking about a typography course. Yeah. Um, that you're on it, it's such an important thing, not, not necessarily type design, but necessarily like if you think about graphic design as a, a discipline that's really concerned with the translation and dissemination of material, but like actually reading and understanding the material you're working with and writing is, feels like a really, really important thing. And I, 
at least in the experience I've had in the places I've taught, that is more and more um, being like shunted out of programs yeah. or like yeah. ushered to the side. Or, and even if you are interested in that, whether there's time for that to actually happen. So I think right. that, but I also don't the idea that like everyone who's a designer should be a writer because I think there's a lot of bad graphic design writing. I'm not for one minute suggesting that every graphic designer should also be a writer or an author, but actually having that ability to be, have that attention to detail to the material or the language that they're dealing with. Yeah. No, I think I completely kind of concur with what Andrew was kind of saying that. The other thing I think would be kind of reading as well as kind of writing mm, um, and yeah. kind of reading um, in graphic design kind of discourse and particularly within kind of institutions and education. And it, it might, my, my only experience of graphic design education is based in the UK. Um, so I kind of went through um, kind of um, graphic design courses, BA graphic design courses, and I'm now teaching on a BA graphic design course. Um, and there's, there is a lack of, I think, reading or reading around a subject or kind of understanding yeah. how to read text. Um, and that's not something that's kind of um, even discussed or taught. And I think it's something that can be kind of taught in a way. And I think writing plays a huge role in that and your way to kind of understand uh, a reading and it, it, I think it kind of probably boils down to kind of the, the minutiae of kind of you know the detail right. and the way something's structured um, particularly kind of as you know graph designers or typographers you're kind of you're um, you're putting forward information um, in whatever kind of form you might like to think of it is kind of information you're communicating something between kind of parties from one person to the next and to understand language is the integral part of that and I, I think that is kind of missing uh, currently within kind of education. Yeah, yeah, I agree with that that completely. My my last question is: I'm curious, are there who are the the writers, or are there books or or uh, critics who have really kind of influenced you and in, in the way that you think about all of this that we've been talking about? Who are the people that that have kind of really shaped that? We both are big fans of. Um, People like W.G. Sable, uh, yeah. Peter Hanneke. Um, I think there was a, um, a book called The Afternoon of the Writer by Peter Hanneke. We were both actually on a residency at, the, um, at Oxbow School of Art in just on Lake Michigan. And um, it, was, it was an odd residency because we found ourselves in this position of like wrestling. Like everyone there was quite craft-based and it was obviously an arts residency. Um, and we were there as graphic designers and it was like, at times felt like an odd fit, maybe that residency. So it was, we were like wrestling with where, what we should be doing in that residency, like should our practice like, like adapt to that? And in the end we were like, no, actually this is a time to like think about the next issue of bricks and actually talk about some of the things we're doing and actually take advantage of us being in one place for a period of time mm -hmm. and doing some of that research and discussion, which was like super productive of course, but maybe didn't result in a, uh, a piece, which was fine. Uh, but we at the time, I think I read it and I gave it to Matthew and he read it too, this short book by Hanukkah. And um, there's a section in it where um, he uh, he meets with a translator or the, the protagonist of the, the novel, the writer, meets with, the, meets with a translator who talks about this really freeing um, experience of stopping trying to be a writer and like relinquishing control and saying, actually, oh. a translator and a publisher of material. And... Like it was at the time when we're like, okay, well, we don't have this like fine art sculptural practice, for example. So like letting that go and like our work is 
what we do well is being responsive to material and actually like channeling it, providing a platform for it and disseminating it. Like, and that's a, can be a really freeing thing to, to not try to establish something like pseudo artistic practice. Mm -hmm. So that's one that's like where I feel like reading things that are not in the realm of graphic design, but you're, yeah. whatever, you're always going to see it through your own lens in some sense. So there's people like that. B.S. Johnson, Anberg, I mean, like reading those kind of things and very much enjoying them. But in the more in the graphic design realm of things, for me personally, Mark Owens has been like a super, super influential. Yeah. Uh, not only his work, but so when I was a grad student uh, in between my first and second year, I went to Philadelphia and worked with Mark. Oh, wow. Um, for a month and a bit. And he just moved to Philadelphia with his partner, Alex, and um, his dog, Bruce. And they essentially, I felt like I was kind of for the summer by, by them he talks a lot and he has a lot of really interesting stuff to say so like that um kind of that summer or that period was like got a lot and a lot of material from mark a lot of things to look at and read and i would kind of follow up on a lot of the stuff that he would kind of yeah throw out off the cuff and i thought it was like a a really interesting thing like we may we worked on design projects too but i think just the discussions and the kind of openness and the generosity of of mark as kind of an interlocutor or or, or maybe as a kind of tutor in a sense is great and i also before that obviously loved his writing and have really like yeah. loved his writing since so um yeah i think quite a lot of the stuff we read is probably kind of again outside of graphic design from the literary world it's either kind of maybe fiction or perhaps non-fiction by authors such as you know w sable bs johnson um and Hanukkah and I think being able to kind of draw on kind of some of the things that are kind of discussed there um, and use them as metaphors in your own practice mm -hmm. and particularly kind of the example that Andrew talked about earlier um, and this idea of kind of the translator and kind of wrestling with being an author um, and then not necessarily feeling like you have to author something but you can actually be this kind of person who sits in the middle um, and you're kind of taking uh, one form and turning it into another form, which I think is a, a great a kind of analogy for what kind of graphic design is. Kind of yeah. Broad. And I think we'd only kind of really, I mean, there are things we'd been thinking about, but we'd only really been able to kind of crystallize having read um, this text that has nothing to do with graphic design at all. Right. Um, so I think expanding those kind of interests outside the field is a really great kind of pithy um uh, Corel Martin's quote that something like uh, looking at graphic design, graphic design, graphic design is just incestuous or a lot <laughs> yeah. of time. Yeah. Um, reading itself. Um, yeah. And I think that's something we read a uh, uh, kind of undergraduate and kind of ever since have been really interested uh, in kind of looking outside the field in order to look back into it. Um, I think one of the texts from, if you like, graphic design criticism that's been hugely influential for me and probably also for Andrew, and I think we both read uh, on BA, was uh, Chris Wakeling, who was our typography tutor, introduced us to Yosha Shuley's Designing Books, which oh, is a yeah. manual for designing books. But it talks about design as an approach, and some of the considerations for book design can be applied to you know, the broader field of graphic design or even design in general. It's the kind of methodology, a way of thinking, and I think that was really... Kind of influential yeah i love i love how you how you said um you know kind of looking outside the field and, and finding those those analogies or you know you're you're seeing these things through through the lens of being a designer because that's what you are and i i, I really feel like that's what you're doing with bricks from the kiln in a lot of ways and i think that journal is a way for a lot of designers to 
actually kind of get outside the field a little bit and to to maybe see things that they they weren't initially would have not come across otherwise so i'm a big I'm a big fan of what what you guys are doing. Um, I think it's great. I'm I, I can't wait for the next issue, and I'm so glad that we got to have this conversation and and talk about all this stuff. So thank you so much. Great. Thank you for having. Thanks for having. This episode was recorded on March seventh, two thousand eighteen. Our theme music is by Andy Borgasani. We're on Twitter and Instagram at Surface Podcast. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, SoundCloud, and at ScratchingTheSurface.fm. Thanks for listening.